3: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Welcome to the DFO Rundown podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on DailyFaceOff.com.
2: Welcome to episode one of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger and uh, we have the tanned man, uh, Frank Cervalli, after uh, a week off in the the sun, Frank. Uh, Clearly, uh, you went in the sun. Where'd you go? And uh, what uh, level of uh, SPF did you use? Uh, We
4: escaped to Florida for a few days. Um, Fantastic trip. But I, I, you know, and my wife is on me all the time because I say, my last name ends in a vowel. I don't need any sort of sunscreen. And every single time I come back, like, you know, you know what it's like when you have kids, you're in the pool for like 10 hours a day. Like the back of my neck, I wear the sun, the sun shirt when I'm in the pool. I know like I'm one of those guys, but like, you know what? No one needs to see me tarp off. So I wear the sun shirt. It protects me of uh, sun wise. And the only thing that's exposed is the back of my neck. And it's like a leather belt right now. Like it's just burnt to a crisp. So, so I put could probably sunscreen on dude. It's yeah, called,
2: like skin cancer.
4: Yeah. I should probably get on that, but I wear the hat and the glasses and I don't know, get in the pool and have enough tequila to fuel a Mexican cartel for a few days.
2: Oh, well, the, the, there's nothing better than hanging out with the kids in the pool. It uh, it is very uh, relaxing and nice. Gets you, you off your phone a little bit, which is good. But there's a uh, hey, there's lots of hockey stuff uh, to get to. Uh, let we, we got to start. I think with the one of the more emotional games. Uh, I, I think it was one of the few times where you would have fans of almost any team rooting for the Vancouver Canucks after what they have gone through as an organization, uh, coming back their first game with like a few days of practice, almost the entire team had COVID Braden Holtby playing out of his mind in goal. And they come from behind to defeat the Maple Leafs last night.
4: What a ridiculous performance. I mean, you know, at that point to nothing, you know, you could have just packed it in you're the canucks i saw on twitter someone said that their lung capacity must have been like a bunch of octogenarians at the top of mount everest uh 25 days off uh such limited practice time uh, a lot of medical testing a lot of guys that were severely ill um you know really needed some help to get back on the ice and they down to nothing they could have just said hey, you know what we were forced into the situation we were dealt a bad hand uh, we're just going to you know lay back and 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 that's not what happened at all. I mean you don't, you said it. You don't have to be a fan of the Canucks to to appreciate that game. And Brayden Holtby, what do you call that? The poke check barrel windmill man. I love the windmill, like, what, what, love what the windmill save. Yeah, what, like so it kind of, you know, I know it wasn't nearly the same scale or moment, but it reminded me exactly of that enormous save that he made uh, I guess it was game one of the Stanley cup against Final. Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. That was insane. So um, yeah, Braden hope full marks and, you know, not to launch into a, a, frankly speaking, but what, like, I know if you're not angry or, or your view isn't polarizing that it doesn't belong on Twitter, but like the reaction from, from Toronto Maple Leafs fans after the game, like they were immediately like, this is worse than the David Ayers game. I'm like, seriously, like, your team had plenty of opportunities, you know, how many more scoring chances do you want? Like they, it's not like they, they packed it in and stopped trying. Uh, Braden hope was excellent. And so, you know, why, like, why the same sort of criticism does Braden hope not deserve a little bit more
2: praise than, than David Ayers. Well, uh, Frank, uh, emotional, quick, uh, anger fueled uh, reactions happen on social media, but I, I think I saw lots of people be like, "Hey, man, like give the give the uh, Canucks credit." And Braden Holpe, though he was, you're right. Like, what are the 37 saves in that game, and many of them were like five star saves for sure. But the other news of the game, of course, was the Edler hit on uh, Hyman. I, um, you know, might he might be getting a call for a suspension, although he did get kicked out of the game, and, and sometimes that plays a part in it, but. Um, I know after the game, they were saying Hyman smiling and was being all positive, but I'm telling you, they lose him for any stretch, man. He's a huge loss for for that team. He's not Marner or Matthews, obviously Mm -hmm. in skill set, but his consistent work ethic, that'd be a major blow to that team. He's the heartbeat of the Toronto Maple Leafs.
4: I don't care what anyone says about production from Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner or John Tavares or anyone. That team runs on the back of Zach Hyman and the way that he shows up every night. And I know they're now in a position where what they've lost four straight and, you know, people are all of a sudden, you know, questioning again, this team and where they're at, but you're right. Losing Zach Hyman for any period of time, if they had to, um, you know, that would be a significant problem. And then moving forward, I think, you know, if he were to be sitting out, it it sort of gives you a window into what next year might look like pending UFA. What's Zach Hyman going to cost? Is he, he's the premier, in my opinion, the premier player in his role in the NHL. And it depends what you want to call it. Some teams call it a press player, a player that's just that hound on the forecheck that does everything right. That, you know, feeds your top players, the pucks, uh, and does all the dirty work required. Uh, You know, he's the premier player at his position in the league, Jason. So what does he cost as he hits the open market? Is it six? Is it
2: is it five and a half? Like what, like he, he's gotta be in that, that, that window I would think. Yeah. I, th- I thought somewhere between like four, seven, five and five, five, depending on the team. Right. I think depending on the team and depending on um, you know, what, what they're looking for, what they have as far as cap space goes, because th- that's a lot of times what it comes down to is what it, it, all it takes is one team that's willing to pay you more than the other teams are. And yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, there's there is a flat cap, of course, but uh, it, he will be an intriguing player, no question about it, to see uh, what happens uh, moving forward. And uh, speaking of seeing what happens, Frank, the East Division. Uh, you've got Boston, you've got Washington, you've got Pittsburgh, the Islanders. They all made these big moves. Uh, the Penguins stubbed their toe a little bit, but Buffalo is not going to be the easiest out here down the stretch that so they're playing loose now. But what a what a change in dynamic that's been, by the way, yeah. like all of a sudden, like, you know,
4: the sky is falling in Buffalo and has been for the last decade. And then like, if you check out Twitter now, again, not to put too much emphasis on a place that doesn't exist in real life. It's like sunshine and rainbows now in Buffalo again. Like what? Like Casey Middlestat. Like everyone's a believer
2: now. Like what? What happened? Well, wow, wins, wins, man. When you're so low, you just look for anything positive uh, to see where it goes. But the the Buffalo uh, trade to Boston and then Ottawa. You look at at Hall comes in. He's paid immediate dividends for them on their second line with Krejci. They seem to have some chemistry going with Smith right away. Riley comes in on the back end and has been very good. And then Curtis Lazar slides in like three players fitting three very specific roles. And suddenly the Boston Bruins look incredibly deep.
4: Yeah, they do. And they're a team that, you know, as they only continue to get healthier here are going to be in an even better position, you know, moving forward. You know, it's so interesting the way organizations have a knack at, at putting players in the right positions. And it's interesting, like, you know, I think a lot of people had just looked at the Lazard deal and they're like, why, like, why is he in the mix here? But I think Boston has this ability and I, I, I feel like you touched on it in a recent pod. And if not, I wanted to expand on it. The idea that Boston produces fourth line players and players in that very specific role that play it just as well as anyone that they, it's like they groom these guys, they put them in a position to succeed, and then they go and they get paid elsewhere. And then Boston has this sort of next crop of fourth line players that are just the ideal players that slide up, play well, get paid somewhere else. You know, Noel Achari, go down the list. Like there's been guys, you know, over the years, the last 10 years that they've done it better than anyone in that one specific position.
2: Yeah. They've been very good at it. And then, you know, Hey, when you, when you have a former heart trophy, you can just a winner who can just slide on your second line. And uh, I think a lot of people incorrectly uh, wrote off Taylor hall because of what happened in Buffalo. Uh, If you looked at some of his underlining driving numbers, he's still kind of the same. He just wasn't finishing at all. Like shooting percentage was
4: what two percent
2: breakaway to save his life. And then he kind of scored on a partial one in Boston. And, you know, he's got points, I think in three of the four games they played, are they you saying the and, Sabres,
4: by the way, are better without Taylor Hall?
2: Uh, no, <laughs> but yeah. why, like, how weird is that? Like, so well, they had they, won a few games. Like I, I never really buy into that. I think that's a real false narrative. It's like people that would say, well, wherever Hall went, they didn't win. I'm like, well, New Jersey hadn't won the playoffs in six years. And he took him to the playoffs. Right? Arizona hadn't won anything in seven years and they won a, a play in round. So that narrative's kind I, of I, false. I say it tongue in cheek, but like, it, it is interesting though. Like, and again,
4: this is a guy that maybe like, you know, with all due respect to fans in Edmonton, Taylor Hall is now playing on the best team that he's ever been oh, on It's not close. By, by a country mile. So, you know, how, what kind of success do the Bruins have? And then if Taylor Hall gets going, how much does that change the storyline around him? If, you know, like you said, he can sort of regress back to the mean uh, of, of where he probably should be with his underlying numbers.
2: Well, you wonder if if Taylor Hall becomes the Phil Kessel of Boston, right? Because Phil Kessel, when he went to Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. they, he made a huge difference. He could have easily won the Smythe the first year in 2016. He was incredible. He I was voted really for good. him for the consmite that year. Yeah, he should have won in my humble opinion, but... Um, you know, you look at Hall who is, you know, and, and Kessel was a top 10 scorer for many years. Hall's being a top 10 score three times in his career like that. You've got Pasternak and Marchand. And it's funny to look at at how Bruce Cassidy runs that team right now. Now I think part of it has to do with their condensed schedule, but you look at the minutes played Frank of every Ford, like we're talking 12 to 15, like Marchand's the one guy because he's penalty kill and the power play where he's up a little bit higher. But I was looking at their minutes played of all four lines, the last four games. And, it's, it's pretty even. And that's a luxury that you can have right now when you're playing a ton of games. So fatigue might not even be a factor because you're not really running certain guys into the ground at all. It's really important. I mean, the, like these schedules are so insane.
4: Like you look at the Vancouver Canucks 19 games in 32 days. Like that's, that's what they were facing. I I know the Bruins are a bit different, but still that East division has certainly been jumbled as well. And their schedule is going to be nuts Um, you know, I I think that's the one thing to, you know, you see when you talk about ice time and I wanted to hit on this quickly, you see a lot of players complain, um, you know, why am I not getting more ice time? Why am I not, you know, forwards, why am I not in the 19, 20 minute range yet? They're still productive. And I think, isn't that the coach's ultimate goal is like, how do I get the most out of this player? Like, how do I get this player to score 30 goals while keeping him in? the minute range that works for him and his game. And also in the grand scheme of our team, it's an underrated sort of aspect of coaching that I, I feel like we never talk about in the hockey world that, you know, it, it's always, why isn't this guy playing more, playing more? Like how about you get your team to be as efficient as possible? And that's what seems like the balance that Bruce Cassidy, as you mentioned, seems to be striking in Boston.
2: Yeah, it's been a good start for them. Uh, Mantha's loving life in uh, Washington uh, with a lot of goals. So uh, we'll see kind of what what transpires there. The the North Division has, you know, Edmonton, Winnipeg battling for uh, for home ice advantage. You saw uh their head coach, Paul Maurice, speaking of ice time, he really tried to go with a hard matchup with Lowry against the McDavid line. And Shifley just didn't play as many minutes uh, in that game. And now it was their third game in four nights, but I'm kind of, I'm very curious now, as we get into the stretch drive here, when teams, a lot of them know, you know, who they're going to face mm-hmm. earlier now more than ever in a lot of cases. And I just, I, I wonder if we're going to see a lot more coaches really trying even in the games, they don't play those teams Putting in their certain matchups that they want, and it's something that I watch for down a trial the balloon, every so year. to speak, like just to see, like see how it works. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, because you, you watch watch how coaches try to create different line combinations in the last quarter of the season. Coaches that know their teams in the playoffs, and they look for every line needs an identity come playoff time. You talked earlier about Boston; they're fantastic at creating an identity of a line, right? Curtis Lazar comes in, you know how the coach wants them, and most players really thrive when the coach says, here is your role. They put it in a box. Mm -hmm. These are your exact requirements. This is what we expect from you. Mm -hmm. And then the coach continually puts you out there. Guys, even if it's not the sexiest role, when it comes late in the season to the playoffs, we've seen so many players like transform and all of a sudden be like, okay, this is my role. And they're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we're not scoring, but we're limiting goals. And it's like, it's like they're scoring goals, right? They get fired up. And I watch for that more so. And I think this year, I wonder if we see it even earlier because- You know, you look out of the 12 teams pretty much know who's in, even 13, maybe 14. And a lot of cases outside of the top three teams in the century, you kind of have an idea of who's going to play who. I was going to say so I think there's
4: two divisions where seeding doesn't mean jack shit. And I would say one is the North, because I think those four teams are, are somewhat equal. Like, I don't think getting Montreal is any sort of benefit in the first round. We've talked about this. The other one is the East. The East is so evenly matched. Like I don't think it One makes any difference from four, but the other two divisions, the central, you know, you want to make sure you get in that top spot and and have, you know, two of those teams, the two and the three, you know, make sure that one of those obviously is knocking out the other, whether it's Carolina, Tampa, or Florida, you want that easy first round matchup, easy in quotes, and same thing in the, in the, the West, like that's going to be nuts. Those two, three matchups in the first round.
2: Oh, I, I think first place in the, in the, uh, in the central is the most is valuable the best of spot, yeah. spot. without no question. 16, like, you just, yeah. The Florida Tampa game on the weekend, Frank, uh, I watched it and oh, like it. You could feel the intensity, even through the TV a little bit. I was jacked for that game. And it's.
4: You know, how have it, those two teams not met? I mean, I, I know the answer how they haven't met <laughs> because the Panthers have stunk for the last two decades, but like how awesome would that be just for like the game in general
2: yeah well I think for fans in those two markets to get like I I firmly believe that rivalries they they really become a life of their own once they're in the postseason and if you had Florida play Tampa in the postseason finally I think you know the the fans there would love it it's close proximity and it's something you could build on in the future because like Tampa's obviously been the top dog for a long time mm-hmm. but Florida's coming and Florida looks like a good team and even without Aaron Eckblad they haven't they haven't had a major drop off it might happen at key times in the playoffs unfortunately for them but mm-hmm. we haven't seen the drop off and the Panthers to me have been uh, have been very very impressive so far I agree and I think I've been waiting for that moment you know and we you talk about the drop off
4: go back to you know episode four or five of the rundown where we were saying, I was saying personally, and this is on me, I'm pointing to myself that the Panthers were built on a house of cards. You know, I looked at their schedule. I looked at Chris Dreger and his numbers. You know, I I looked at their first line and I was saying like, huh, like how's this one going to work? Like Carter Verhage is, is, is this real? Um, All those things, you know, have come together in a way that I, I feel like, the Florida Panthers this year are the Vegas golden Knights from the year that they broke into the league. There's something about that chemistry. And, and I'm curious to see now adding in a few pieces at the deadline. And this is something that the Toronto Maple Leafs and a number of other teams are going to have to go through. Boston seems like they're handling it. Well, how do they react now that you've, you, you were playing well and you were on a roll and now you're taking some pieces out of your lineup to then inject some new personalities and people how does that work out in your room chemistry wise?
2: Yeah, it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch. I'm loving this, uh, the the race down the stretcher, even though a lot of the teams we know we're in, we just don't know where they're going to finish. So it makes the matchups. Really good. Uh, Let's get to our our big guest of the day today, Uh, Chris Bodger. I'm very much looking forward to this interview. It's brought to you by uh, jock MKT jock market, of course, is a hybrid between fantasy sports and the stock market. You can trade shares of players in real time with other users and prices are driven by the user trading activity. And of course, if a player gets on a roll, you want to buy low baby, because then you can ride the stock up high. And if you want to try it out, Of course, right now, go to uh, jockmkt.com and use the promo code DFO20. You'll get a $20 deposit bonus to start playing. You'll have a lot of fun.
4: Yeah, we wanted to head in a different direction this week, Jason, with our guest. Let's talk about mental health. I I don't think we talk about it enough. You know, we have one day a year where we have uh, Bell Let's Talk. And, and, you know, there's lots of different things that pop up where we want to have a conversation Um, And I think we need to keep that going throughout the year. So let's dive in and and talk some mental health today. Our next guest on the DFO rundown was the assistant coach of the Humboldt Broncos. His name is Chris Beaudry. And if you followed along with any of the Humboldt Broncos coverage, you've probably seen his face or heard his story. He was not on the bus that day. Uh, He lived actually closer to the rink that the Humboldt Broncos were heading to and decided to meet the team there. And that left him in a spot where of course he ended up, uh, is saving his life. Essentially. Um, he, you know, was then sort of left as I wrote then at the time to pick up the pieces. And so we're pleased to welcome in Chris Beaudry to the DFO rundown. Chris, how you doing? Doing good. How about you guys? Really good. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. And yeah, so let's start there. Um, you know, and I, I it's perhaps overstating a little bit, but you know maybe not in terms of the impact um, that this entire you know thing this incident and accident has had on you not just you but everyone in your community um, and, and I, I said then that you know there was a chance you know a reason why you you were not there on the bus that day. Um, and, and I think you've found that sort of purpose in the work that you've been doing since you, uh, since the accident. Can you share a little bit with us what you've been up to since then, and uh, and the work that you've been doing just with mental health and awareness and everything else?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of uh, originally I was focused on my own healing, to check out different healing modalities, be it from a naturopathic doctor to a homeopath that soon that grew into working with the first online mental health class for high school students and then is kind of blown up into some public speaking and podcasts and all sorts of one-on-one counseling i'm doing with folks and it's it's really been amazing to hear thousands of people's mental health stories and knowing that just offering my own story can help them heal on some level
4: how has it helped you personally just taking, a, a you know, all the things that you went through? And if you haven't read Chris's story, um, it, it's it, incredibly deep. Some of the things that you were asked to do in the hours and days after the accident, but to, to take a minute after all that happened to really stop and address exactly the grief that you were going through and you were feeling to hit that head on as opposed to letting it just linger.
1: no, it as soon as the accident happened, I lost every single tool, mental health tool I had, and I had thought I knew so much at that point. I had been sober for four years, had been focusing on self development and things like that. That once I noticed how it was all gone, I had to completely put myself back together in a different way. And in that first year or two, that that was the entire focus, and I kept seeing that there was. I kept putting myself in a box. This is the only way I can heal. And that box was blown up. And I found so many different ways. And I knew if I didn't look at all this pain, that it was going to eat me up. And so I had to find many different ways to heal, be it sharing with other people, creating my grief group, uh, public speaking, et cetera, et cetera, that really started to set me free and made me a better person and make me makes the interactions I have with people better. Because when I'm a better person, then I'm less of a dick when I interact with people.
2: Now, Chris, you you're yourself now are a counselor, correct? Uh, so you went, w- when did you go through, you know, that that whole schooling process?
1: So I'm not actually a counselor. I'm a, a grief and mental health supporter. But okay. I've been taking multiple uh, non College courses like I've been working with Gabor Mate. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's a doctor from Vancouver. He developed an approach called Compassionate Inquiry. Okay. And I'm training in that. I've trained in multiple different things from Sadhguru's uh, Inner Engineering through uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, the author who wrote The Four Agreements. I've trained with yes. him a little bit and. Those are the types of healing modalities that seem to work for me. And then I'm just sharing what those folks have learned with others. And it, there's an area of people that it, it works for, that that stuff works. And those are the folks who, who come to see
2: me. Oh, I'd love to hear that because I, I think overall in in North America that, that we're we're maybe not as open-minded to, to healing and, you know, really understanding our inner psyche and, and other stuff like that. And uh, it sounds like that's maybe more of a, of a path that, that you've gone down and it really allows you to really look deep within yourself and then also, in, and help others do the same.
1: Absolutely. Like the, the first thing that I learned about was self inquiry from Ramana Maharshi. And his biggest thing was asking, who am I? But for me, it wasn't that it was, why am I hurting? Why am I hurting? And I knew that my thoughts created a lot of the pain. And now this process isn't fast. Even some of the things, I just just healed some stuff not two weeks ago around the Broncos. I had this story in my mind, whenever I seen that number 29, how pissed off I got. I was like, no, screw that. There was 30, there's 30 people there. I'm hurting. What about me? I'm in pain. But that was just a story my mind kept creating and creating because that was easier to feel left out and to feel angry than it was to feel the entirety of I lost 16 people, boys that I love, friends that I love. And until I let go of that story, I couldn't process that grief fully.
4: Chris, how have you kept ties to the hockey world? Um, you know, I, I know in talking to you in the years since that. You, you tried to get back into coaching at uh, the junior hockey level and you know, maybe you just weren't feeling it, but have you been able to transition uh, with some of the stuff that you're doing off the ice in this healing and, and apply that to the hockey world?
1: Absolutely. I've been doing a, a lot of public speaking with, with hockey teams, university teams, pro teams, and at the provincial level again. I've really enjoyed that because... Even after I originally quit hockey because of PTSD, I just couldn't handle coaching. And once I kind of got a footing again, I looked at how much I enjoyed helping many different individuals and how limiting myself to one team would only allow me to work with 20 to 25 young boys, where if I'm call it a mental health advocate, it allows me to work with hundreds, if not thousands of players, coaches, individuals on multi different multiple different levels.
4: So who have you been helping in the last you know couple of years here? What are some of the teams and leagues that you've been talking to?
1: I worked with the University of Vermont and NCAA. I worked with the Battle for North Stars. I've worked with uh, two female teams out of Ontario, triple A hockey teams. Uh, I've been at discussions with the U of S. I've worked with the Winnipeg Jets and Jesus, there's other junior teams in there, but I forget.
4: So what what do you think the reaction has been like, have you found that, you know, in terms of, you know, mental health, and this is the, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is, you know, there's so much of a focus on specific days. Oh, this is, you know, bell let's talk day, or this is, you know, we need to talk about the humble Broncos because this is the anniversary or we need, you know, everyone wants to put this in a box. And I think that's one of the issues that, you know, as a society we face around mental health is that it's just compartmentalized and you put it over here and you say, oh, I'll pick that up again. You know, when I want to think about that or when it's appropriate, even though it's going on all the time, have you found, uh, I'm curious if you found in working with all these different teams and levels, uh, a different sort of openness as you've gone along, like are, are, college teams and junior teams and pro teams do they all approach it differently how have you found their receptiveness in terms of players and staff in terms of addressing you know this issue that exists not just in the workplace but you know at home and at the rink everywhere
1: besides a resource uh capacity i mean when we look at pro teams of course they're gonna have more resources ncaa is gonna have more resources than the sjhl but I think you can toss all the resources aside and you have to look at it at an individual level. And it starts with, starts with yourself, absolutely. But then it starts with who's creating the environment there. Are you creating an environment to heal? And we, we can talk about this as a hockey team. We can talk about this at a grocery store staff level, or we can talk about it as a large corporation. Who are the folks that are there creating the conditions for growth? are you looking that wow guys you're you're playing hockey with us and we're together seven to eight hours a day and through that eight hours the only focus is hockey or are we setting aside 20 minutes 40 minutes an hour a day where mental health is something that we discuss or that we have the spaces available for you to go if you are triggered to process something because through the workday i mean between the three of us do you get mad almost every day Once a day, does something get you and just grab you? And you're like, ah, and then you just hold it down. Let that be a resentment. I mean, anger, anger is such an easy emotion to look at because healthy anger is clarity. It sets boundaries. It's subtle and it's in the present moment. And if we deal with it, then with that boundary offense and we just say, hey, whoa, 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 you know, something just doesn't feel right here. I I think for myself, you may have overstepped here. Uh, I felt a little fear come in or I've had some shame from something else in my past. It's dealt with, it's done. But when we don't have that safe enough space, when we don't, when we don't know that we can't say those things, then we hold it in, turns into a resentment. The next day we get upset again and again and again, and that builds and builds. And then that anger comes out a lot of times at the places we do feel safe at home with our kids their spouses, with our friends. So that's why I say it starts at the top. It starts with coaches, it starts with board members, it starts with bosses, creating the spaces that are safe enough so that we can be with our emotions, not in an unhealthy way, but in a healthy way. Because unhealthy anger is resentment. Unhealthy anger hurts me and hurts you. But it's being with those in a healthy way at work because that's where we spend most of our time. We don't want to take this stuff home. If this is where it comes from and we don't want to take our stuff from home to work because at home we should have a safe enough place to deal with these emotions on a heavy on a healthy level
2: you know chris i i think especially specifically if we're just talking in a sports team environment i'm guessing that's going to be a challenge because especially in hockey and And it's slowly getting better. But for the long, longest time, it was all about the team, the team, the team. And that if, you know, if you ever try to show your individual side, which might be fear, it might be frustration, it might be anger, that somehow that means you're not a team player. How have you been able to to communicate that with people that just because you focus on you at some times doesn't mean you're not a team player?
1: I think it comes back to if you're uh, if you're focusing on yourself as an individual and you're being the best you you can be, you're going to be a better teammate. You're going to be a better teammate on the ice. You're going to perform better if your mind's not stuck back in oh my girlfriend this or my job that or the interest on my credit card or. What am I going to do about college? If you've worked on those fears, you've worked with those emotions in a healthy way, you are a better teammate. But I think it also comes back to the stigma too that we're coaches. We, we have to look at this as an individual thing. Sports are great. They're amazing. But they're not more important than someone's mental health. They're not more important than continuing a pattern that we know is going to affect a young man when he becomes a father and a husband and an employee if we're continuing these patterns at that age, what are we actually doing as leaders and as coaches? Are we actually benefiting them if we're just teaching them how to do a net drive properly or if we're helping them work with anger and shame and fear? That seems more like a coach to me, someone who does that. The rest of it, the hockey stuff's easy. That, that'll that just, that'll do its work itself out.
2: Do you look at coaches now and, you know, I, I coach U nine with my son. It's like, you know, it's just for fun. Right. But it, it's about communicating to young kids, looking them in the eye, you know, always encouraging when they do stuff. But do you believe that part of, cause I I've done some of the, the coaching clinics, right. And, and most of it is, is a lot about technical stuff. And then some of it's, you know, there's a very you you kind of gloss over what I like to call headlines and, and it headlines the stuff about, you know, you ask a child this or that. Do you think there needs to be more of a structure in, in Canadian sports on coaches? And then if, if we had better uh, resources for coaches to, to be better communicators, that eventually that would actually help the kids because. Um, if the coach knows how to communicate with the kids and he knows how to do the technical stuff, the kids are probably going to enjoy it more. And that becomes a, you know, a safe Haven for them. Conversely, where if it's like, well, Hey, you know what, I'm here, you do what I say because I'm the coach and there there's no, there's no real gray area.
1: I think the uh, yeah, I think the training is important, but I think also it relies on the coach to have the want to look at his own stuff, to be the change you want to see. And now, especially when you're getting higher level coaching and you're with players day in, day out, when you're looking at the AA and AAA programs too, and you are as much of an influence as a child's parent, if you're not working on your anger, I mean, we know all the coaches, the trash can throwing and the freakouts and what that, and they're looking at you still at an age where their brain's developing, where they're continually learning new habits. And this is the stuff we're teaching. And we got to check in with ourselves. And can we be the change we want to see? If you got a team that's got an anger problem, let's look here. If you got a team that has a fear problem, let's start here. Let's start there. Work on your own anger. Work on your own fear. And hopefully Hockey Canada can have some resources, have some things available. Because when the coach is showing that, that's where those young guys are going to learn those new patterns from
2: quickly chris what was when you got back in a coaching and you said you had ptsd at first and it didn't work but now it's worked a little bit what was what was some of the fears you had as a coach that you felt maybe you projected on players and then you had to look within and that made you a better coach
1: i had such low self-esteem about myself my whole life i found that most of my life i've been living to try and please my grandfather and my father that's why i wanted to go to the rigs when i was younger it's why i started farming originally and that I kind of projected that fear onto players. I knew I hadn't played at a high level, so whenever I was questioned, I would get angry and it would be something along the lines of, I spent five hours looking up this, I don't care if you're a player, I freaking know this more than anyone else. And that continued even after Humboldt and I remember explaining something at a video board, if I didn't have everybody's full attention, I would just go into a state of panic and fear that I'm no good, I'm a loser, I know nothing, you're a piece of crap, you're never gonna recover from this, just go home and kill yourself.
4: How, like, how did, you, how did you ultimately work your way through some of those feelings? It started
1: not looking at the hockey side of things, it started looking, and this is what Gabor Mate's work helped me with, it started looking at that kid, that five-year-old, why did I need to impress my dad? why did I create this belief system or this coping mechanism at such a young age? And my dad, like I said, he's worked overseas or worked away on the rigs most of his life. And it started with me at four and five years old trying to impress him. So he would stay home because I just wanted a dad who was at home that wasn't gone all the time. Yeah. And so every time he came home, I'd try something different and I'd try something different and they never worked. And then my mind, a five-year-old doesn't understand what's happening. So I create this idea in my mind, well, the dad must not love me because I can't get him to stay. But if I try harder, I can get him to love me. And that's what played out. That same type of scenario, not the exact same thing with players, but it's closely tied enough that my self-worth was tied into how I thought about myself, that it just continued to play out until I actually looked at that. And could understand when this coping mechanism was coming up. And instead of resisting it and fighting back with the anger, I just met that compassionately and said, Yeah, I see that five-year-old Chris there. I know that this is what you're doing to try and make us feel better, but it doesn't work anymore. That doesn't work. We have to sit with how upset you were at five that your dad was gone all the time. That that just like with the Broncos in 29 how that kept me from feeling the grief of everything this coping mechanism was easier to feel that my dad didn't love me than to feel the pain of him leaving every two weeks
2: to work did you have that conversation with your father was that was that part of the healing
1: yes now originally i didn't have to for part of the level i I just could do it in my mind i could sit down there as 35 year old chris and talk to 32 year old dad and talk to five-year-old Chris in my mind. And that was the beginning of the process that then gave me enough confidence and self-worth again to sit down with my dad. And with him, it was no big deal. He was like, really? I didn't know that. Why would he? I'd never said anything about it. I didn't have this. I wasn't able to at five or eight or 15. And it wasn't as scary, nowhere near as fearful as I thought it would be.
4: And now that you've, you've had a chance to process, you know, some of that and, and a lot of the other things that have happened. Curious how you think you're a different person since the accident.
1: Oh man. I now I, when I coached, I talked about selflessness and I talked about intentions and doing things the right way before the accident i was still so very self-centered it was about my goals i knew that coaching in a selfless way would help but it was about me getting to the whl or to pro hockey that was still the main driver where now my continual work is to constantly not have myself in the driver's seat that i do things for other people because in the end i feel my best when I'm helping others, when I'm serving other people. I mean, even we'll give you guys just a small example. Think of a promotion you got or the new car you bought or the last time you went for a nice dinner and how that made you feel then, how it makes you feel today. And now just think of a small service you done, like holding the door for an old lady, how that made you feel then how that made you feel now. And to me, I still feel the same today when I do an act of service for someone. In all those other accomplishments, the day I was hired by Humboldt, I don't feel the same today as I did then. And those acts of service last. And that's what I wanna do. That's why I look at doing things out of service because those last, those good feelings stay.
2: Frank talked earlier about the anniversary, and of course it was earlier this month, Chris. and, and i know sometimes the word has a negative connotation so i definitely you know at, at least on social media the word triggered um but are is it still a, a highly emotional time for you when, when it comes to april 6th or have you been able to 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 understand what you're feeling at the same time you know mourn and and, and embrace those emotions that, that come i would assume on the days around it absolutely
1: i think that uh i think the triggers are a good thing triggers are the doorway to healing and this year was the first year I was actually able to be in Humboldt for the anniversary. And yeah, it carries, the day does carry emotions, but I don't try to make it that specific. Like if something comes up, I want to be with it when it comes up. But luckily enough for me, there was stuff that came up on the morning of the 6th and the evening of the 5th. That was a lot of this anger around that, that story I'd shared off the start. And then when I was able to process that through the day, when I went to Humboldt, before we all went to the, the church, I was able to work with that anger, release it, and just to be able to be with the family members who were left. And it actually became a bit of an enjoyable day to just visit with everyone.
2: You, uh, I know you weren't on the bus, but of course you came upon the crash. And um, I, I read Caleb Dahlgren's book recently, and you know he obviously doesn't remember it i've talked to tyler smith a little bit about stuff and, and everybody has different memories of that uh, you weren't involved in the crash but i can't i can't imagine what you saw at that time how were you able to to heal that? Because I would think that would be there was probably some guilt for a while. You're like, Jesus, should have been on the bus. Maybe I could have saved him. I'm not sure. But how have you been able to, to handle, you know, that aspect of it? Because I, I think you're very accurate and when you say I could see why you felt like, hey, there was 30 of us. And then there was more because there was you know, some parents who showed up at the time. How, how have you been able to to deal with all of that?
1: You know, I actually, I'll go with the first question first. I never felt any guilt around it because all year I had drove to those games, the Malford, the Yorkton, the Nippon, just because of location wise, that's what we did. And after a game, I could get home and cut video and have everything ready for Darcy and Mark before they got off the bus. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it really improved our efficiency to deal with the on-scene stuff, that was some of the first things I had to do, and that was uh, with my, my home homeopath was is also a therapist, and it, it took a long time, took a long time. Like, some of this stuff isn't a week, two weeks. This was a year, year and a half, where I noticed my mind almost broke in that moment. Like, all I could see was all these sod bags that were close to the color of our of our hockey bags, and I couldn't understand why we had so many hockey bags in the field. That's all I could think in that probably first 20, 30 minutes was, why do we have this many hockey bags? And until I allowed myself, my mind to let go of that idea, to sit with that shock, a shock was so heavy. It it took eight, eight, nine months to not feel like I was a walking zombie, of just slowly visiting this in a safe way those emotions and it might have only been two minutes at a time 90 seconds at a time just whatever I could handle and I would go see my homeopath once every two weeks and we just dive a little bit at a time a little bit at a time and it was continually working that process where if I didn't and just stayed back I'd still be in that walking zombie clouded state but it was me knowing I didn't want to live like that I wanted to heal
2: what were you asked For those who who maybe don't know the story, Craig, what were you asked to do in the days and the day of and the day after the crash?
1: I was asked to go to the hospital and start identifying boys that were coming in. And I did that. And it was that was difficult enough in itself because with some of the injuries, some people were it was hard to tell who they were. And then I started to beat myself up. I started to tell myself, you goddamn loser. You've been with these kids every day all year. You don't know who they are. They need you right now. You're no good. And then at five in the morning, the coroner called me and asked me to come to the funeral home to identify the bodies. And that was, again, another thing that took a lot of time to heal. The, the One of the main things they said right when I walked in was, Chris, we don't have enough time here that we can't stop working on. These people while you identify them. So there were some sounds and some sights that didn't leave me for months.
4: When you, when you go Chris to, to start processing through that and you said, okay, we'll take 90 seconds here or two minutes here. What, what is that? Like, what's that release? Like, what emotions are you feeling? I'm sure it's different every time anger, whatever it is, but what are those minutes? Like
1: a lot of it is A lot of it was fear at first, just sitting there and allowing myself to pretty much convulse and shake and weep. Because I remember saying this so often, so often to my wife and to my homeopath and counselor that I feel like I'll die if I feel this all. And they'd say, you're starting now, we'll stop whenever you're not safe. And so I would just sit there and scream, cry, yell, weep, whatever it may be, and just until I felt like I was almost going to white out, like blank out, then I'd stop, and that was it. That was it for the week. Then the next time, a month later, two months later, maybe it was three to five minutes. Maybe I could start having a deeper conversation about it, and that's when my grief group showed up was where we could sit around, and I could tell you guys the same story I just told. Like the first time I talked about the morgue, I was just shaking and crying and I, there was nothing I could do, but shake and cry. Then the second time, maybe it was just shaking. The third time, maybe just my knees rattled a little bit until I finally have processed that enough where I can tell it now in a, that it is, it's not just a story because it did happen, but there's not as much emotion attached to it. it. It's used as a service. I use it in a way to try and help people now.
4: But it's got to be painful, though, to bring yourself there, like to know that you have to go there in order to, mm-hmm. to get to the other side. Like, how do you bring yourself to that point?
1: Uh, for me, I knew that well, when I went to AA, how, how painful that was to say that I manipulated my parents, I manipulated my family, I physically hurt my sister and my wife when I was when I drank, how, how painful that was to say. But once I did that, the... F- it would uh, The benefits were endless. They were absolutely endless. And I knew that the same process would work in this. That once I started to feel some of the sadness from the Broncos, some of the fear from the Broncos, it was the same as once I started to feel some of the anger and the shame from my alcoholism, that I would start to become a better person. And that was that dangling carrot waiting for me. And I'd seen that carrot through all that fear and through all that pain. And I knew that I had to process it. Because if I didn't, I knew where I was going. I was going back to booze. I was going back to pills. And that is not what I wanted.
2: That to me, you know, it's it's so interesting listening to you, Chris, today and, and reading Caleb's book, where both of you, you know had had to deal with 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 trauma prior to this you know dealing with your own uh you know recovery of over alcoholism like that takes a lot of strength and a lot of courage and you know i wonder you know dealing with that yourself did that somehow strengthen you because that allowed you to maybe process this better because you'd been through a pretty hellacious road yourself prior
1: yeah i mean even even the previous bus accident I'd been in with my senior hockey team where we had some people die, it, it gave me a level of awareness to actually process some of the pain. And then the addiction stuff gave me tools. I, like I said, I lost every single one I had. But going back to AA, having supports already in place that I could lean on certain people, that that helped me find new mental health tools, find new ways to grieve, find new ways to process things. And along with, I mean, all the folks who reached out, that that gave even more tools and more support that helped. But having that foundation and that understanding that, you know what, as painful as it is today, once we move through this, life gets increasingly better. That gave me a tremendous amount of hope. And if there wasn't that hope there, I don't know where I would have ended up.
2: How often um, are, are you in communication with, with the other survivors? And how, I, how much do you lean on them and vice versa?
1: Uh, I wouldn't say I lean on them so much anymore. I, early on, Christina and I, so Darcy, Darcy's wife, we talked for hours a day, texting back and forth. We would be texting each other at three at four in the morning and we were uh, great supports for each other. Um, I'm still in contact with her quite often. I probably talk to Fisk, Shumes, Smitty and Patter the most. And that's probably bi-weekly or monthly. And then I try to reach out to everyone, the families and all the other players every few months, every couple times a year.
2: Which, which is kind of normal for, for any team uh, when you think about guys that you played with. Um, I do want to go back quickly to your to your, your bus accident on the senior team. Um, when did that happen? What, what transpired there? Uh, in 2011, I was coaching the Nakam senior hockey team,
1: and we had booked uh, rooms at the Imperial Hotel. And it's the first time in Imperial's life that they've been double booked at a small-town bar. And so we had finished playing a game and ended up, we said, well, the closest place to stay is the city because we had to go uh, east of Saskatoon the next day. Or sorry, west of Saskatoon. So we go back, we're driving to the city. And just before we get there, the one young fellow on the team who was driving wasn't comfortable driving in Saskatoon. So we pulled over to switch drivers, parked the bus on the side of a two-lane highway and put the flashers on. I got up to stand at the door to say, open the door, we got to go to the washroom before we switch. And before I finished my sentence, a car hit us from behind at 130. Uh, the people in the car were killed instantly. Everyone on the bus had minor to major injuries. Myself with the most major had compartment syndrome in my right leg. And uh, I needed stitches on my head in a few places.
2: Wow. I didn't, I hadn't heard that. Like it's, you, you've lived quite a life, Chris, and you know, some people, and I, I don't know uh, how spiritual you are or not. Uh, you know, some people always say, Hey, the, you know, they only give you so much that you can handle. Uh, do you, do you t- aspire to that? Do you think that's accurate? Or are you are just like, nah, I, I think I've had enough to, to, you know, for my lifetime right now. <laughs> you
1: no, know, I, I think that the, the human capacity is that of one that wants to heal that what I have in me, everyone else has in themselves. So we all have that innate ability to heal. It just depends on if we want to or not. Now, I think it's, it's the most beautiful thing to see, to look around the world and there's tragedy every day and to know that people every day, day in, day out, heal from their pain. People heal from from child abuse, from physical abuse, from tragedy every day. And we all have that same capacity. No one person has any less. And to me, that gives a lot of hope.
2: Um, uh, I guess, uh, Frank, you got anything else or we want to get to rapid fire? Yeah, Chris, I, I just wanted to, you know, ask
4: you about your future plans. Like what, you know, I know you're a farmer and, and we talked a bit uh, before going live just about, um, you know, you know, just all the, that farming takes up uh, and all the work that goes into that. But what do you want to do? Like what Chris Beaudry, five years from now, what are you going to be doing?
1: I love the public speaking. I absolutely love it. I want that to expand to something much larger. I hope that we can start doing it live again and in schools, in communities at large corporate events And I also want to expand my one-on-one support healing, whatever I call it. Uh, I probably might go and dive into university in a couple of years when I finish some of the courses I have, just so that people can, I know there's some folks that unless you could get their session wrote off by health insurance that they won't come. So I want to have that made available for some people.
2: Awesome. Well, Chris, we always like to end with rapid fire, which is just uh, some quick questions, a little bit more lighthearted. I know this has been a very serious conversation and I really appreciate it. So I want to end with some laughs as well. I know you can be serious and have a sense of humor. So uh, here we go. The only rules you got to answer, honestly. Okay. Uh, Number one, of course, uh, what is your favorite non-alcoholic drink now? Chai tea. Why?
1: I didn't drink caffeine before when I drank alcohol and it just I like the little boost from it. it's warm yeah
2: okay um, what was your best skill set as a hockey player? Oh, I mean, hitting people because I had no hands and no feet <laughs> <laughs> um, what would be the best book you would recommend for someone who wants to start the journey to uh, better mental health? The four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz what what in, what resonated with you the most about that book?
1: Uh, that everything was my thoughts, that all of my, a lot of my pain was created with my mind.
2: You have, I I think you said something like 45,000 acres or or 20,000 acres, whatever it is. What is your favorite crop and why? Uh, Canola
1: is, it is the easiest one. I think to seed it's the most adaptable and the most profitable.
2: If you could only have one type of cow to breed on your herd, would you have Angus, Hereford, or Simmental, and why?
0: I would
1: probably go with Angus because the quality of beef, even though the calves or the mothers are nuts when they calve
2: it's true we have some we have one of my a stubby at my farm right now my mom can't go in the pen because she will run her over but only for a week after she has her calf the rest of the year she's fine but then she uh, she kind of goes like frank when he doesn't get a coffee in the morning so it's a uh, it's not good <laughs> and uh and one last one for you what is your favorite minor hockey uh, barn excluding humboldt of course that you've played or coached in in saskatchewan and why
1: Well, it's got to be Nakem. I mean, Nakem is the best rink around. Frank's seen it. It's just cool enough that you don't get too warm. The boards are good. The net's good. The ice is good. Their dressing rooms are good. Yeah, Nakem where they
2: make them. them where they make them. Awesome, Chris. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much, man. That's an inspiring interview. I really appreciate you joining us today on the DFO Rundown.
4: Hey, and and Chris, I, I wanted to see if you could spell out your email for listeners. If they'd like to contact you. Uh you know, Chris, you are one of the most welcoming people. Uh I'm proud to call you a friend. And, and I know that anyone that listens to the DFO rundown that wanted to reach out to you, uh you'd be happy to engage them in a conversation. So um yeah, share your email with everyone.
1: For sure. It's c at Sasktel.net, which is C, B is in Bob, E is an elephant, A is an apple, U is an umbrella, D is in dog, R is in rhino, Y. At S-A-S-K-T-E-L dot net.
2: Awesome. Well, we'll put that up on the screen too for uh for Tyler and post-production. So thanks a lot, Chris. Uh, we really appreciate it. Continued success. We, we'll we'll have to touch base again and, and just see kind of uh where your path is going in the in the future. Thanks, boys. Thank you, Chris. Chris Bojier, fantastic, uh, big guest of the day, of course, uh from uh Jock mkt.com check it out uh, you, you want to get in on some players right now who you think is going to be riding high to the playoffs and of course you can play all their sports right they're, they're big into golf so yeah, if you want to do it check it out and use the promo code dfo20 to get a 20 dollars free deposit to start playing uh frank it was you know great week chris bodier that i, I loved his honesty his frankness. Um, I, I think that's going to help a lot of people just to, to look within, I, I loved his advice on, you know, when people get angry, cause, uh, you know, you earlier referenced uh, social media. I think that's probably the time where most of us get angry more than ever. So, mm-hmm. uh, just walk away, uh, before we reply. And I think we'd all be better off <laughs> at yeah. least myself. I can speak for myself
4: for sure. hundred percent, but also to like recognize that, like to, you know, that's what struck me the most about our conversation is to know that you have sort of all those things going on. But then to like to want to address it and have it come out, it's so much easier. And I know I do this myself. I'm sure a lot of us do it, where you sort of pack it away. You have things going on, uh, trauma, whatever it is that you've been through, that you just—it's in the recesses of your brain and, and the human body. And and spirit is an amazing thing because you know you're able to to put that away. And 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 you know maybe you think that it doesn't affect you, but it's probably going on behind the scenes and to get to that space where you, you know, you want to bring it out and talk about it, not easy to do, and certainly not easy to come on a podcast and share it. And we didn't even really get to talk hockey with Chris, but he, like, he's just an unbelievable guy in terms of, you know, the dedication that he had coaching that team. You know, you, he he touched a little bit on the hours of video that he put in, but coaching a junior hockey team on a somewhat volunteer basis uh, you know, those people are the lifeblood of our game. And I know in talking to him, one of the hardest things that he had to do was talk to the parents of, of the kids and players who had passed in the accident, just saying, look, it was my job to protect your son. And, and I felt like a failure that I didn't do it. Um, you know, it's amazing what these, these volunteers and people, the time that they, they put into helping grow the game for players that, you know, aren't on a path to the nhl and so lots of youth hockey coaches i you know thinking of all them uh as we talk about this stuff
2: yeah it was it was really fantastic and i think a lot of people are going to join i want to thank chris again Uh, a busy week frank we got a gm coming up on uh, episode 22 on friday so we look forward to that Uh, stay safe get some aloe vera on your neck and uh, we'll talk to you on friday sounds good see you then
0: Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Sarvali and Gregor. Keep it locked on
3: dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode.
0: but there's more. You gotta decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount and that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's gonna find the back of the net first and you're gonna wanna be careful cause that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes, because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear, and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight